takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get on to my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. I've got a doozy of an episode today. My guest is Ted Perlman. Who's Ted Perlman, you say? Yeah, I said the same thing. I was turned on to him by a mutual friend of ours, Paige Jackson. Thank you, Paige, for setting this up. Uh, Ted Perlman. Gosh. So I looked him up. Wikipedia. It's not a, it's not a, big, uh, a big listing on Wikipedia. It's only two sentences or two lines. He's an American musician, record producer, songwriter, and arranger. He's produced, arranged, recorded, and toured with major artists. Who do you think? Uh, major artists? I don't know. Could be anybody. Whitney Houston, Harry Belafonte, Bob Dylan, Diana Ross, Burt Bacharach, Ron Isley, Alessandro Rosaldo, The Manhattans, Blush, Ringo Starr, Joe Cocker, Chicago, and Young MC. And you know he's worked with more people than that, too, which we talk about in this terrific uh, interview. Or chat, I guess. It's not really an interview. You know my style. It's less, it's less of an interview and more of a conversation. And uh, that yields all sorts of things. On top of talking about working with all those uh, famous, interesting people, we talk about religion, we talk about family, we talk about reconciliation with, uh, with fathers and mothers, we talk about forgiveness, we talk about uh, the meaning of life. I'll tell you, if you listen to this podcast, you'll understand why we're all here. Or, I don't know, that's a little bit hyperbolic, but those of you who know me, Known that I'm prone to hyperbole, but there there are some real uh, nuggets of wisdom in this podcast, in this episode, and I really, really enjoyed getting to know Ted. I hope that we get to uh, stay in touch. Luckily, working at the opera, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I do something that's really interesting. Some people love it. Some people don't know much about opera, but, but Ted uh, is a big opera fan. I had him come as my guest to Tales of Hoffman, and he really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I hope it's something we can continue. Love to keep in touch with him. Anyway, I hope you enjoy our chat. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. I love doing this. I want to thank you all for listening. And here's Ted. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so I, uh, I, I, I don't know if, I don't think you've listened to the podcast before, but I make a habit of not preparing too much. Cool. Uh, and the reason is that I, I really like to get to know people mm -hmm. just on the mic. Um, now, I know, now you brought in your bio, so I'm looking at it right here. And I know that you, I did, I did look you up on Wikipedia. And I know that, that you produced all sorts of really interesting people. And you're also a player, right? What, what's your pr primary instrument? Uh, I've played guitar for like a thousand years with a thousand people, but. Um, I've been, you know, playing keyboard so much that when I started working with Bacharach, he thought I was a keyboard player, which was really funny because none of my wildest dreams would I call myself a keyboard player. Oh, that's really it's something. It's just for programming, uh, it's better. Like if I program on a guitar, yeah. MIDI guitar, yeah. everything sounds like guitar parts. Right. Everything's 151 like sure. that. But if I go to the keyboard, then I'm like, okay, so I work with Marcus Miller. He plays bass like this and I can program the bass like Mark. I mean, I play bass too, but... I can program, okay, so I worked with John Faddis and all these great guys, so this yeah. is what they sound like. Yeah. So all these great musicians that I've worked with, I can just close my eyes and channel Roger Williams or George Duke or Billy Preston or you know Richard T. Right. And how they played. Right. And so it's just, it's better for me on the keyboard because it wasn't my first instrument. Right, okay. I'm oh, uh, sorry. No, that's all right. No, 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 just get comfortable. Um, 
So you're from Brooklyn? Brooklyn, New York. And Joyce uh, too. And did you grow up playing instruments? Tell me, were, first of all, were your parents musical at all? Were they musicians? My mother is a director, actor, painter. So, you know, basically my father doesn't know the difference between C and C sharp. He okay. just thinks they're the same note. And what did they do? Uh, my father was a, an actor who didn't do it full-time, should have, but who uh, PAF Playhouse out in Long Island, did semi-professional theater. Okay. And um, he was a salesman. And so, when did you find that you had an aptitude for, for music in particular? How um, that happened? When I went to go see Murray Kay's show at the Brooklyn Fox, and I, I mean, it was like the, the opening act, the opening acts were Cream. Yeah. And the Who, so and we're the talking head, about the sixties, uh, yeah, early like sixty-eight around there, late sixties. Okay. And Murray uh -huh. the K would do these shows. He was a big DJ in New York, and he had these shows with about ten acts. Yeah. So the headliner was Mitch Ryder and Dionne Warwick, but the opening was Eric Clapton, Cream, right. and Who, and Mandela. So I said, I want to do that. That's too cool. Really? How yeah. old were you then? About ten. Wow. Okay. That so what did you cool. did you pick up a guitar? Was that your first thing? I took my mother's guitar because uh -huh. she was taking guitar lessons, acoustic guitar. I sawed it in half. <laughs> So it would be thinner. Yeah. Took my transistor radio, took the speaker out, put it inside there, wired it up to the stereo, put a pair of taps on my boots, stood on the table, playing the guitar in front of the mirror, scratched up my parents' table, and I was on my way. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, you messed your mother's guitar up. She was like, I don't care, Andrew you want to play. Yeah, I cut the guitar in half and I screwed up the whole top of the table. So oh, that is really funny. And then, so. An inauspicious start. Right, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's like so many of us. Did you uh, play through high school? Did you study music formally? Um, How did that go? I was I failed music in school. Okay, but I um, I had a guitar teacher who was really smart, and he said, "Don't worry about your teachers in school because what I did was the first day of school I asked, are we going to do arranging?'" Yeah, and she decided to castrate, castrate, castrate. castrate. She <laughs> yeah. started to use me as an example. She said, "You don't know anything about arranging." So yeah. my teacher said, "Don't worry, we'll do it." And they taught me a really interesting way. Me and Ira Newborn, Stuart Sharp, all came out of this one technique where they gave you enough tools to get on the job, and they figured once you're there, if you're not stupid you'll ask questions and you'll learn and you're a teenager yeah wow so that was cool so when i started work i just started working with all these older guys yeah and so I, just when you're around just ask and yeah. so when i got to work like for harry belafonte robert friedman who started berkeley school of music and has written all those arrangements for uh, chanticleer and stuff sure so he's the one who brought me in here it was my mentor so how do you do that because we're doing tours with symphony orchestras in canada and um i'm watching him on the plane writing all the orchestrations out i said how do you know what it sound like i know so was it so, just, I mean, it was just luck. Just, just, I don't think it's luck. I think I mean, God no, puts you where you're supposed to be. Okay. And I think it's up to you to take advantage of it. And if you're, you know, when I went to Israel, I worked with people who were in the Israeli Philharmonic. Sure. And so I've been able to cross through classical pop rock jazz. I worked with Jorge Dalto and George Benson and people like that in, jazz, in the jazz world. Yeah. I've done, I was in the Hour Power Orchestra with Dr. Schuller, Crystal Cathedral. Sure, I sang there for a couple summers, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I mean, so I've been, I was really confused because here I'm going between all these worlds. I've done Broadway, uh, pop rock, jazz, everything. Yeah. And I thought it was really eclectic and African music even, or Japanese music or you know Asian music, different stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it turned out to be really good because when I started producing records, I really had this base of knowledge that didn't come from school because I said I graduated high school, but um, I taught at UCLA, I taught record production there. Okay. And um, so all of it, you know, from having like Rob, um, Howard, Howard Roberts. So Howard Roberts had the Howard Roberts Chorale I worked with. So Howard's also the conductor of Broadway shows. And he wrote these things, Black and Brown. They did it, um, Duke Ellington's thing. He did it at uh, the Kennedy Center. Mm -hmm. So I've had all these teachers around me that just asked them questions. Lalo Schifrin, that's what we did the thing with Placido. I did a thing for the Vienna Symphony with uh, 
Lalo did the arrangement, so I did all the uh, tracks mm-hmm. for Amazing Grace that was with Diana Ross, Placido Domingo, and Jose Carreras. Okay, so... Too much, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. So let's let's start, what was the... So you started working when you were in high school? Is that Am I getting that right? I started playing, and then when I got out of high school, I literally went right to work. I had a deal with my father. He said, okay, you stay home for a year, and if you get a job working in music, fine. Otherwise, you have to go back to college. And within like a month, I got a job that paid me like five times what he was making. <laughs> playing in a group called The Classics. Till then, my darling, please wait for me. Really? Yeah, and then I moved to Israel, which is a good story. How old were you when you were... When you moved to you moved to Israel when you were nineteen. Yeah, I went there twice. And I understand that you that you uh, are a Christian. Yes, but you, did you grow up as a Jew? Jewish. You did as yeah. a practicing in a, in a in a family not practicing not practicing. Yeah, we were Jewish because we went to delegation. What's cult- a week? Culturally it, Jewish. Yeah. Uh, so why did you go to Israel? Um, because I had my friend got my parents' friend got me a job with the uh, BBC Orchestra in London that fell through. So I didn't want to go back to college. So they said, you can go to Israel on kibbutz. And they Wait, said- who, who are who are they? I mean, how does this work? My parents found out that you could get them, if you signed on as 2.0, which is new immigrant, okay. you could go to Israel, kibbutz, and maybe you go see what you do in music Any there. Jew can do this. Yeah, back then. So oh, I went right. to kibbutz. Okay. And this is why I say, God really has had me by the hand for a long time. Because on the kibbutz, there's a beautiful girl there, separate from everybody else, in the army uniform, and I said, wow, who's that? They said, that's Yafa Yarkoni's daughter. Now, Yafa Yarkoni's the biggest singer in Israel. So she becomes my girlfriend. She takes me to meet her mother. Her mother owns a club in Tel Aviv. She puts, I audition for her. She brings in all the musical people that she knows. I audition for them. She gives me a job in Tel Aviv. I meet my friend Ellie McGinn. And then when I went back the second time, I start working in the recording studio. So play. the kibbutz, tell me what the kibbutz is. Isn't that like a, like a co-op, like a cooperative yeah. community where you go and everybody's assigned a, a task yeah. to kind of contribute to the, that local uh, micro culture? Yeah, it's a real, um, it makes very strong children because the kids don't live with the parents after the age of about four. Okay. And, and they all live as a group, so they learn to depend on themselves more than just mommy and daddy. And they see the parents every day, but they're environment is more based on you know the family that they're with and what did your parents think about you doing that instead of going to college they were just happy i was doing anything anything <laughs> you know yeah my mother was happy about guitar my father was just like what are you gonna do for a living you know were you just... a tough kid i mean were, were, were you a difficult uh, son for them my father and i didn't get along at all my mother was cool my father and i you know he's a frustrated actor who didn't do it full time so he really so he was never suspicious. really gave it a shot yeah that, he was, that he was good enough to do it yeah and but he so, was, did he have some fear about it? He was afraid to do it? Or? Yeah, because even my mother said, I'll work, you go do it. And he still didn't he do it. But do they it. had a theater group that was really high class. One of the actors that came out of the theater group was Marilyn Greenfield, who was on Seinfeld, George's mother. Sure, sure. So, so who wants to get out of the kitchen sooner? So sure. all the actors were that caliber. And they were, all had day jobs, and they just did it like that. Are your folks still living? My mother's gone. My father, unfortunately. Don't, sorry, Dad. Because he's, he's, I wanted him yeah. to leave and my mother to stay. And, oh, well. And God didn't get that message. <laughs> I sent it as clear as I could, and somehow or another. So, didn't. are you guys still not uh, too close? No, or? we're good now. You are. Oh, yeah, good. Said, one thing about getting baptized, if you're going to, you know, say you're a Christian, uh-huh. then the part about forgiveness, you have to apply. You it's can't like one just, of the 12 steps. Yeah, you have, but that's like the number one thing, you know, which was really, really hard for me. But I just. Tell me uh, about okay. it. The, the only reason I ask is that my. My dad uh, split when I was about four and a half. Wow, sorry. And um, I didn't really know him until I was, I think, 16 or 17. My mm-hmm. grandfather died when I was 14, who was really the patriarch and Mine really too. devastated me I when he, when he passed. Way. It was really, really difficult. And, um, and we've kind of gone back and forth and, 
he really was not nice to my mother when she was a young mm. girl and uh and I haven't been able to really uh now I'm not a Christian so I don't have Are you I, I don't have that no I'm I'm uh I would say I'm a agnostic atheist let's say uh-huh. um so I don't have that that system in place to help me uh, reconcile that. Mm-hmm. What? How did you go about doing it? When you became baptized and you you became a believer, or I guess you maybe you always were a believer, but you decided to take this route of forgiveness. How did that go down? How did how did how do you do that? Well, first he was like, you know, he said a couple of comments. He posted at Facebook, uh-huh. you know, about oh, see, so not Jewish now, and you know, in Jewish household, Jesus' name is like anathema, you know. Mm-hmm. So he was like, you're not Jewish, and then he writes, you know, if Hitler came back he wouldn't care that you got baptized, he'd still be after you or something like that. So that's his own uh, fear, okay. which is interesting to me because I've been going to Fuller Seminary. Right, yeah, yeah. And so all I've learned about is Jewish people. You know, sure. everybody in the New Testament, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Jesus, Jesus everybody's sure. Jewish, yep. Paul. Yep. So um, I've learned more about Judaism at Fuller than I ever learned in Hebrew school or living in Israel, Right. which most of my friends in Israel are atheists, Right. agnostic atheists, so right. they're Jewish, because that's their religion. Yeah, culturally Jewish. And they're Israeli. Right. But they, you know, like I said, when I lived in Israel, I never went to synagogue. I didn't know anybody with the Bible. Right. So for me, um, forgiving my father was more, it's not that you forget about our relationship. Right. It's that you kind of like, you can move forward. In that movie, The Shack, we went to go see this last night. That's really all about forgiveness when his daughter gets killed by somebody and he has to go through this whole journey to where he can finally forgive the person who killed his daughter not forget about it and let the anger go, but to forgive him so he can move on. Is your is your forgive is the forgiveness element at all dependent upon how it's received or no? You just It doesn't even just, have to be received. You just let it out and then that's it. My and divorce then... is the same thing. I was a real abusive relationship. Uh-huh. And coming out of that really was what um pushed me to find a relationship with God because I just felt like I was at the lowest point in my life and I had nothing. Really? So yeah so with all the stuff I've done, if you talk to me before You'd say, who are you? And I would say, oh, I work with Whitney Houston. I work with Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you ask me who I am, I'm just a man, you know, trying to be a good man. And I happen to have worked with a whole bunch of people, but none of those people are as good as anybody sitting in this I mean, room. were you the victim of abuse or were you- the, were you Victim. Really? Okay. And so did you, you went through a forgiveness process with your ex-wife as well? Or is, just, that in the, is that in process? I had to forgive her because I, otherwise it was keeping me up at night. I couldn't do, I couldn't yeah, go forward. Right. One second, I, re- I got away. The people in the church helped me get away. It yeah. was really, I don't know if she's ever gonna hear this. Great singer. Yeah, yeah. But okay. um, just, we shouldn't have been married. And it, you know, so I stayed there longer than I should. And we had a studio, a big house over in Lakeview Terrace. And so I just worked 25 hours a day. Just that to was my avoid way. everything. Yeah, just to get out. And nobody saw it. It was, we did a really good act. And we worked because, you know, we came out and signed to Capitol Records. So we came out here, she won Star Search. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we were, you know, working at a high level. She was one of the vocal coaches on American Idol. Yeah. So this is really hard because all the people I work with, we all work together. Yeah, right. I mean, how does that go down? I, I Because I, I had a I had a breakup when I was just out of college. It wasn't at any kind of level, but I I really, I lost a lot of my friends, yeah. you know, because people take sides and, and it's natural. I don't. I don't really blame anybody. It's just how it shakes out. This was interracial too, so I really um, thought that I wouldn't be able to get black singers. And black singers in town have come back to start working with me saying, oh no, you don't have to worry. We don't even talk to her. So, so it shook out okay. Yeah, uh, it when just it was took a while, but I had to just let that, um, it was more fear, not hatred, just fear. You know, I had a restraining order. It was ugly in court, mm-hmm. but um, I couldn't make the whole focus of my life, you know, I hate her and, you know, 
get back. I don't want to get back at her, so I just wish her the best. Right. I hope she finds some way to uh, get rid of that pain. And you know, I thank her for all the years that we did music together, which was amazing. Yeah, and maybe without that relationship, you wouldn't have found something that's been so fulfilling yeah, for you. Yeah, exactly. With she taught me a lot, and she was, yeah. you know, she's singer. She's one of the best singers I've ever been blessed to work with. So. Yeah, yeah. Do was there a moment when? Uh, I'm fascinated by it. I'm sorry, I keep going back to this because I because uh, I don't have religion in my life, and I'm wondering: was there a moment that that it hit you like a uh, lightning bolt, or was it some you have gradual? God, you have thing? God, God in your life without even you know? acknowledging God. Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad to you hear know? that. <laughs> I mean, and, and if you want to look at it, I'll take I, it. I have clients that um, don't call it God; they call it the universe, sure, the universal spirit, sure. And so, like my Hindu friends, and so that's if you call it God, you call it Jesus. I mean, I see how, that in science. I see that uh, just strictly believing in science outside of theology entirely, mm -hmm. that we are all eternal. According mm -hmm. to science, if all matter was created on one at one time and all matter is fixed, then matter goes back to the universe and comes in. So there is there is some analogy that there, you can sing, which I absolutely agree with. Yeah. I mean, that's a there's no greater gift that you could say acknowledge this universal spirit, the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, the Great Spirit, mm -hmm. that you can make something come out of your throat. I mean, I, playing an instrument is one thing with your fingers, mm -hmm. but you can you sing and you can make the instrument where it resonates through your head and sound and the sound that just like is like the sunshine coming up in the morning that yeah. you can make that sound. That's the testament to any kind of. Um, uh, overall, God, Holy Spirit, Universal Spirit, right. because that doesn't happen. This this CD can't make that sound. I can't make that sound. Right. You know that chair can't make that sound. So I think maybe that's why I've I I think maybe that's why I'm so attracted to music and and it's been uh, the thing that I've stuck with the longest for sure mm -hmm. because I do get a feeling when I do it that takes me back to being on the la on my grandfather's lap mm -hmm. under his robe on a Sunday morning when great grandpa's making waffles in the dining room. It's that that's the only thing that can get me back to being a, a child at that moment where I felt the best. I think the notes keep going too, you know? Yeah. Like I listen to Maria Callas, so it's like Maria Callas is gone, but just like that voice, I mean there's some I've been listening to so much opera lately yeah. and some of the singers really just like like channel just it close or my eye. You yeah. know, when I hear music, somebody sing kind of makes my back arch like I have a a scoliosis, something like that, and I close my eyes. Like I, I understand Joe Cocker because first time I worked with Joe me Cocker, yeah, I stood too. next to him, yeah. and he started doing that, and I couldn't look at him. I turned away because I was laughing so hard because he went into like this yeah, paralytical yeah, yeah, state. Exactly. Yeah, I get it now. Me too. You know, it's just like I feel it the does same like way. This, yeah, I don't hear it with my ears. It's kind of like I hear here. I've always liked that about Joe Cocker. As a matter of fact, that he, that, uh, and that's the nature of singing in in general. I think mm -hmm. it's just um, showing yourself in the truest, simplest, most distilled way to people. It takes a lot of courage. Yeah, I don't think, I think you can BS any instrument, you know, mm -hmm. and you can be like, oh, I'm really good. You can go study things and everything like that. But with singing, I think that you can tell right away if they're honest or not. And mm -hmm. I don't care if somebody's a great singer. I just want to believe that they're singing from here. Me too. I, Joey Ramone couldn't sing, but he really believed everything he sang. Yeah. You know, and I just don't like singers who like you know, I'm so great. Listen, that's what to me. I love about my boss, uh, Placido. Yeah, he's the he is the real deal. Yeah, and you told me you loved Andrew Bocelli. I do. All my opera diva friends, they always would talk bad. And you're the first person who's a professional in the you know the theater world and the music world singing that actually said that, which was great to hear. He's because the real deal. Sure. I love listening. And Josh Groban, I've become a fan of, sure. and I never liked Josh before. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, Josh has come through here. He's a he's a, a wow. nice guy, and and, uh, and you know he's when, great he at sang, what he does. when he sang when he sang I'm. 
with Jimmy, sorry, with Jimmy Kimmel and Ben Affleck when they did the thing about I'm having sex with Ben yeah, Affleck there, right? So, funny. so with Josh Groban sitting at the piano singing, it was just like the cabra for it's me. It was so great. Funny. So again, was there a moment in your life that you can say that this change occurred in you? Yes. Well, tell me about it. My wife and son died on the table in front of me when uh, giving birth, and I was sitting in there, and um, you know, I'm not supposed to be there, and they like I was at Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcar where I was like invisible. And everything went wrong. And everything that happened, this is a real changing point for me. I don't know if time to go into this, but um, the doctor and, and had a partner, a young guy and an older guy. The old guy retired. The young guy was doing the C-section mm. and he screwed it up. And so blood is spewing out like a geyser. And the old guy shows up out of nowhere, takes the young guy, pushes him, knocks him into the wall, knocks him down, goes like boom, 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 brings out the baby. And in the process of everything happening wrong, like my wife dies right there. And she said she was looking down on us at Celsi and I started calling Jesus. Now I never called Jesus name my whole life. Never, never called that name. And I started calling, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. She came back. So this is um, an experience that really was, you know, I asked rabbis, I asked priests, this is what happened. So tell me what this means. I believe I saw a miracle where people pray and they get, um, they don't know if their prayers are answered right away. I prayed and I got an answer within 15 minutes, which was, um, a lot to handle. And your son you, is? Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. Yeah. So that's, um, you, most people, and they forgot that I was there and they left me there the whole time. When it was over, the doc said, he'd been here all this time. They just forgot about me. I mean, I saw her, you know, all her insides are sitting out like a puzzle and just, you know. And, and so this was really. Um, and that I, experience didn't change her in the same way? She didn't have the same, I mean. She was happy she, to be alive. She had an out-of-body experience in the whole she thing? She was happy. I mean, she said what made her that she said it was okay, she, there was the light and her grandmother and her family were on the other side and she was going there and it, she was okay with it. She said there was no fear. That's pretty cool. So. Oh, okay. You know, so I mean that, um, if that doesn't make you at least, think, I mean, I just called Jesus' name and you know, I just believe he saved uh, all of us. Huh, and what does your son do? Is he in music as well? No, he's a TSA lead agent down in Dallas. If you try to bring brass knuckles through like they tend to do in <laughs> Dallas, he's the one that goes like this and gets you arrested. He likes that too, you know? And you guys are good? You and your no, son? he doesn't speak to me. Okay. But I have another son who speaks to me. So this is a lot of personal information, but okay. I, I know I'm like an open book now. So okay. I'll pretty much tell you anything you ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said, I don't care if this comes out because I basically, uh, my story is like the same. It doesn't change. I feel the same way, actually. Uh, the, the thing that I like most about this job that I'm mm -hmm. doing right now is that I get to do this. Cool. And I get to talk to interesting people that we have a lot, I have a lot in common with. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I've had the same, we all have, everybody has. That's the thing about celebrity that I don't like. That's one of the reasons I got into this podcast business is because I'm around lots of people who are quite famous in this very small mm -hmm. area of music. And I realized, and I've always known, my grandfather always told me, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And if you see somebody that you want to meet, you go up and say hello to them mm -hmm. because they're just like you and they have the same fears and they're, they, they want their kids to go to a good school and they get an upset stomach just like you do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've had really interesting people. And this is the kind of conversation that I look for mm -hmm. because it's something that we all have in common. It's interesting. And all it's, those a, people. it's all bullshit if you don't, if you don't admit it. You're just you're just lying about it, really. No, the most the people don't talk are usually the most fearful. Yeah, like I said, my ex-wife sang with Barbara Streisand, mm. so that was really cool. They did that millennial show, at sure. the, and I said, "So, what is she like?" And she said, "I said, what does she think about when she goes on stage?" Because I went to go see her, and I 
all my gay friends were laughing at me talking about you've turned because I came out gushing about right. Barbara Streisand. Right. Sure. And she would go sing these things and she'd get lost. And I thought she sang everything exactly the same each time, but she she's like a jazz singer. And she goes up top and she sings something. And then she, when she gets lost, how she gets out of it is really cool because she twists and turns and she uses sure. all the stuff she learned. That was exciting. So I came out of there gushing like, oh my God, she's really Amazing. great. Yeah. And so um, I asked Peggy, what does Barbara Streisand think about when she goes on stage? She said she thinks about coming off stage because she's terrified. Terrified. I said, how can you sing like that and be terrified? She's scared to death. Yeah. You know? I, I, yeah. A lot of people are like that. There was a... Uh, yeah, there are a lot of singers like that. That's actually one of the things that took me out of principal singing. I was a principal singer for a couple of years wow. uh, with an agent and sang around, and and I just didn't like it. I, I really am a very nervous singer. I way. just found a video of me with Harry Belafonte playing solo classical guitar on this German TV show in 1977. Yeah. And if you watch it, it's really funny because at the end of it, my eyes like do left and right because I was scared to death. Yeah, that was my. That's going to be my next question. Have you ever gone through periods of stage fright, or do you? Are you always nervous? Are you some? Do you ever get com very comfortable on those Harry, very high profile gigs? Harry scared me to death because if you're with a group of singers, yeah. musicians, you know you have that comfort zone. If you make a mistake, it's okay because nobody's really going to hear it. So I had to do one piece with him with just solo classical guitar. Savuka did it before me, and I inherited it. Just the two empty of you. chairs, the Don McLean song. And it was all, so I had to go my nails long. I had to take classical guitar lessons. Yeah. And so now I'm on stage where everybody's sitting, there's the 25 people on stage, they all sit there, the light comes only on me and him. And we did it for Princess Grace. I did it for the Queen of England, the Palladium, and terrified me to where I was chanting. I went to, my friend took a, a break, Steve Thornton, a great percussionist. He started, he gave me a gohunzen. So we did Namio Renge Kyo for an hour and a half. So it just made me tired. Didn't make what me that, that nervous. What, 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 what is that? It's chanting, Buddhist chanting. I said, he said, this will make you not nervous. Now, did you study Buddhism at all? No, or no. You, just, you were just in it for the chance. I was trying to get not nervous. <laughs> so I was in Namio Ringi Kyo, Namio Ringi Kyo, Namio Ringi Kyo yeah. for an hour and a half. Yeah. So I, I just got tired. It didn't do any enlightening for me. No. And it just literally, um, I'd be praying. And if you see this video, to look at yourself at the age of, I think I was 23. Yeah. To look back now. So that experience and working with Harry, really, Harry had worked in, with classical people, with uh, he always had like um, you call them uh, legit singers, yeah, right, and mm -hmm. African singers. Mm -hmm. So that was the first gig I ever had, and he was a real um, psychological m uh, master. And he just would mess with you, and just had everybody on edge. And what just do you mean? In what way? You mean he would would in a cruel way, or what? He just he knew how to get to you where you he had your focus. Like okay, so we play at the Greek theater, yeah. And I did a thing and try to remember this is obligato kind of thing I play behind him and answer him. So the review comes out the next day and it mentions me. Okay. It was the old Los Angeles Herald. This is like in the 70s. Yeah. So he comes on stage and he says, try to remember it's not right. And I said, this is like my only like third week on the gig. I said, hey, Harry, didn't you see the paper? They didn't say anything about you. They just said something about me. And he looks at me. Looks oh, at the company oh, manager and oh, says God. points like that. And then I go running back to the dressing room. I'm sorry, sorry, you know. <laughs> and New York sense of humor, you know. So he wasn't, he wasn't fooling around. No, he was serious. And he managed to keep, like after the first year, everybody got fired and he kept me. And the second year, everybody got fired and he kept me. And then he put me, gave me, put me on retainer, gave me the office across from Carnegie Hall, bought me a $6,000 Velasquez. And he thought I was going to be there forever. Took me to his farm and I was like his surrogate child. And he really expected me to stay with him all that time. We wrote songs together and he, yeah. he really exposed me to African music. Fidel Castro gave me a guitar and he opened my eyes to like music. He wouldn't let me play anything I knew how to play. I knew how to play rock and pop. He and always challenged you. He yeah. gave me African guitar. He said, great, you're gonna play classical guitar, African guitar, chromatic harmonica. And Why? you know, 
Why? Because he just figured that. Why? I mean, why for you in particular? Because he just saw that I could do more than I was uh, doing, and that he there was more to me than I'd let myself get comfortable doing. Was that the story of your childhood? Well, I didn't have anybody like that who pushed me. Right. You know, we made okay. bands because my girlfriends all like Paul McCartney, so I forgot to get a girlfriend if I played in a band. So um, Harry was the first one that really, really took me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, and we got to play with symphonies, I said, and exposed me to mu music that I never would have even looked into. Now I'm very like proactive in going to music from Saudi Arabia, Africa, Egypt, everywhere. Because of Harry, you think? Because of, yeah, totally because of Harry. Harry how, did, how did that end? How did that relationship end? I left after three years because I wanted to stay in New York and do recording work, and he got very mad at me. And he didn't want to do that? Or you mean he, he was wanted on me, tour? He wanted, he wanted to me to stay with him, yeah. And I said, I want to stay in New York, do sessions. And I told him three months before we were supposed to go out, yeah. which is enough lead of time to you know, leave. To replace you, yeah. Yeah, but he, like I had become like a second son, so it was more hurtful to him that I left. He, it was a betrayal for him. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever reconcile with him? I stopped by his apartment yeah. in New York and uh, left him a message. And all I got, when I got back to LA, I got a message on my phone and it just says, um, Hello, Ted Perlman. This is Harry Belafonte. Click. <laughs> that was it. That was it? Yeah. So, and they, if you see me in the movie, you can see me for a minute. There's a movie called Sing Your Song mm -hmm. that HBO did on Harry. So you can see me for a quick minute, go by there. Do you have any regrets about leaving him? Looking no. Back? No, it was time it to was leave. The right, it was yeah, the right choice. Because I didn't want to be Harry's guitar player, you know, for life. I had more stuff to learn. I had to learn about production. So it was right to leave. But he, like, everybody's always been fired from him. There's only five people ever left him Bill Salter, Billy Eaton, Ralph McDonald. Me and like one other person. Everybody usually gets fired. So for me to quit before you could fire me probably was a- uh, You were a standout, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I was just trying to keep my job. You know, in my mind, I was trying to keep my job when I got it. He was so innovative. He came over and you know what a wah-wah pedal is? Sure. So it goes wah. Mm -hmm. So he looks at it, he's dyslectic. So he looks at everything different anyway. And he goes, what happens if you turn it around? I was like, you don't turn it around. He says, let's turn it around. He said, no, nobody turns it around. Turn around. So it went, jow. He said, great, I love that sound. It's African sound. Jow, 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 jow. It's cool. Just real um, innovative. He'd always hung out with jazz musicians, Charlie Parker, I mean, Miles Davis. Sure, he was always sure. drawn to that. Sure. And he just always looked for excellence. Everything he did, he strived for it to be excellent. His mm -hmm. show, and he just always tried to go a step further than, you know, than what was expected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And who, so, who were your other mentors uh, besides Harry? Bob Friedman, who I said got me into, you know, Harry. Um, there's, you know, a lot of these guys like Howard Roberts, um, Corral, you know, Howard Roberts, conductor. He mm -hmm. really, Charlie Coleman, who was another great uh, jazz musician who just, and all, Burt Bacharach. I have to say Burt Bacharach because I spent 15 years with Burt. And to work with Burt where you're getting paid and you're sitting next to a guy that can orchestrate it, arrange it, write it, compose right. it. And just to be one-on-one -on -one with him was amazing. Yeah, how did that start up? He came in with, um, another uh, songwriter, Marty Sharon, mm -hmm. and she brought him in and he was like, he came in lilting. He had a sweater around his neck. He came in like some rich guy from Anthony Mame. Yeah. And I was like, hey, and he goes, oh, it's it's a great day today. He was like in a brogue or something. I said, <laughs> where are you from? He said, I'm from Lynnhurst, Long Island. I said, I'm from, you know, I'm from Long Island, Levittown, right? We don't speak like that. And then yeah. he dropped it. And so we worked with her. And it wasn't a good experience. The song was okay, but he didn't like working with her. And then he starts calling me up every year for about eight years. Hey, Teddy, it's Bert. Um, I really think a lot of you. You still work with Marty? Okay, have a good day. Talk to you later. And what did he want from you at that time? Uh, an engineer or a player or a program? Or? Like I program played. I mean, I did everything. You on know? tour for recordings or both? recording? I never went on tour with him. I see. Uh, I got my wife the gig with uh, him uh -huh. going on a tour, but uh -huh. um, I got a Grammy with Bert, mm -hmm. and we just worked on 
all kinds of music stuff I did for Brian Wilson, Elvis Costello, and all these people. Wait, hold on. Did you say Brian Wilson? Yeah, Brian Wilson came to my studio with Bert, and so his Bert and Brian Wilson in the studio, which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it, and okay, oh, so Brian Wilson here, Brian Wilson's story. So I fly back from New York. What year was this? When was this? No. Uh, 2005 or something like that. See, because I Six. ran into him on the street at around around 2000, and, and he, uh, I, I almost fell out of my chair. I was at, do you remember that place, Chin Chin on, sure. on Sunset? Uh, yeah, Chin Chin. I love the food. Yeah, I don't Chinese think it's, food that's not yeah, Chinese. I don't think it's there anymore. Yeah, owned by two Jewish lawyers. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we were sitting out on the sidewalk, and he walked by, and I just, I like, I lost my shit. I like screamed at him. You just said shit. Can we say no, shit? Well, sure. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I mean, I lost it. Brian Wilson. Yeah. You know, and he, he, he's, you know how he's very quiet. Like he didn't want to be recognized. Anyway, I sorry. I, so that no, has so no point to it. I was no, just, no, I perfect. just can't believe it. Yeah. So he, so I get back at nine o'clock at the yeah. house and the studio. He had to walk past the kitchen to get to the, the separate building in the back over or in Valley Glen. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's supposed to be there at one o'clock, mm. right? Bert and Brian, one o'clock. Mm. So nine thirty, I'm sitting there eating breakfast, and my wife goes. Brian Wilson just walked uh, back to the studio. I said, it's 9.30 in the morning, right? She said, well, he just walked past. I said, he doesn't even be at 11. I called Bert. Uh, Brian's here. Well, you have to entertain him until 1 o'clock. <laughs> I said, okay, so I have an opportunity that any yeah. reporter from Rolling Stone would die for. Anybody. I have Brian Wilson. Yeah. So I go out there. Hey, Brian, you know. Did, had you met before? Never. No, okay. So um, He just kind of slinked by. I could just imagine he, him shuffling out there. by uh, like, the window. Yeah, yeah he walked by, by yeah. hey, woo, like that. <laughs> and then um, you want something to eat? Great. So my wife had made a cake, and there's like eight slices of the cake. She brings out the cake here, and he took them all. Right? He took all, ate all eight slices. Then she had some- a cake like uh, a sweet, like a he, dessert he, cake? He ate the whole thing. A cake cake. And then he, she said, you want something? He, he wanted some kind of juice or something. So then- Great. Okay. So now that's 15 minutes gone. So I said, listen, let's listen to Beach Boys songs. I said, my favorite Beach Boys song is God Only Knows. Uh, sure. Love God Only Knows, right? I put it on. He jumps up and he goes, no, turn it off. Bad memories. And I was like, well, I have three hours. If I can't go through Beach Boys songs. So we did piano sounds. <laughs> three hours of piano sounds. I like that. I like that. Let's get drum sounds or whatever. That's what we did. You guys didn't. I, mean, I, I was gonna. I wanted to write a song with him. Chat or I mean, no, he couldn't chat. He was like really kind of like out of it, out of it. Yeah, and um, and if I had written a song, it would have been really insulting to Bert because Bert and him were paying for really. I made a lot of money, and they were paying for this demo. I so Bert doesn't show up, and I write a song with Brian. So opportunistic. Did, yeah. yeah, it was would have been really. It would have been good, but it would have been. Yeah, um, bad. Yeah, underhanded so, a little bit. So we yeah. went through sounds. He ate some more cake and soda and stuff. And then um, we came and we worked on the song. Now, the funniest thing, you'll love this as a singer. So we do the song, track, everything's great. So now Brian gets ready to put on the backgrounds, right? John Pagano sang the lead because Brian, mm-hmm. you want to sing the lead. So um, Tony O.K., Brian, and Burt Becker wrote the song. So Brian goes to the first, he goes to the piano. You have a keyboard set up right next to the singers all the time. Yeah. So he goes like this. He goes, do, do, do. And Burt says, oh, this is terrible. You finish it. I said, I finish it. He says, yeah, I'm going. You leave me here with Brian alone, right? So <laughs> Bert leaves, right? So then, and as, no, as Bert leaving, Brian goes to the second note. He does the first note, the second note, which has nothing to do with the first note. And it's like, okay, that doesn't sound bad. You still finish it. And he leaves, and then he starts layering these sounds. He does the high falsetto one, he does the bass one. And he doesn't do like normal people go, they do the middle, they go right. top, bottom, sure. right? No, he's a do 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 do. They go do 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 do. They go do do do. He makes three in the middle, Take does 12 of each part. Up and down, and in front of my eyes, the Beach Boys sound was right there. It was like suddenly I heard like good vibrations, and I heard you know every one of their songs. It was unbelievable to watch, you know, just just. So the, I him. mean, he's a genius. 
brilliant. Yeah, but he's in such a his own private Idaho. Whatever it yeah. used to be a movie or something. He's yeah. just there. And then, no, this is funny. Okay, let's do funny stories. At the end of the session, his wife came. So Bert said, "But to pick him to collect him or pick him up." Uh-huh. Yeah, she was there for about fifteen minutes. Yeah. So Bert says, "Oh God, this is all inside stuff." Bert yeah. says, "Don't don't give him a CD because I haven't got his half of the payment yet." <laughs> so so great. So at the end of it, Brian's wife says, "Give me a CD." I said, well, I can't do. give you a CD. What do you mean you can't give me a CD? This is Brian fucking Wilson. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. So cut that down. So anyway, I said, um, hello, Bert. Yeah, how's it oh going? God. I said, uh, Brian wants a CD. Don't give him a fucking CD, right? <laughs> I said, um, what do I do? And his wife was screaming at me by this point. This is Brian goddamn Wilson. Give me a CD, right? at your house. In my studio, right? Yeah. I said, Bert, you know, I'm going down, you know, danger, danger, yeah. Will Robinson. Yeah. You know, Houston, we have a problem. He's, so yeah, get on the phone, they talk, yell, 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 talk, 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 and make a CD. But I was like, oh. And then the next time I saw Brian was at the rock and roll um, fantasy camp. I was participating over there yeah. with uh, Mickey Dolans and much people. Yeah. And Brian, I saw Brian, said, oh, oh, real good time in your studio, you know? I was like, oh, thank God, because I didn't okay. know. And my friend Nelson plays percussion with him, and you know, he's- um, Is he, he still out doing stuff? Or what? Yeah, he's still he doing is. Smile, which I think Smile's the most overrated piece of music ever, but- You don't work with him at all? I haven't seen him, no, I haven't seen him since then. I work with his, uh, the Bruce Johnson brought the Beach Boys in the sing background, something we did. And, uh, but it was, you know, it's, it's Brian Wilson, if I, and he signed my guitar. So if I only get to work with him one time, that was a pretty good experience because to watch him create the harmonies was really, then you go back and listen to the Beach Boys record, you can realize that, you know, Mike Love maybe did lead, yeah. Carl did the lead, but yeah. all those backgrounds are all Brian. So when you were touring with, with Harry, um, did you did you just discover that you didn't like touring in particular or was it more that you wanted to learn some other skills and, and set up a studio of your own? Was that more, why? and if that's the case, why is that more appealing than being on the road and being a rock star, basically. Well, and I said, I stopped touring with Harry in like 79, 80. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We decided to stay in New York. Yeah. And at that time, there was still a studio scene in New York. Right. And I wanted to, you know, had to be there in order to get into that. So I- What was compelling you to get into the studio scene instead of oh, being a performer? I, I No, because I wanted to play on all those records. That was too cool with all those great guys. All the guys that were my heroes, Cornell Dupree and Eric Gale. So in that period between 80 and 86, I managed to get myself in with Willie Colon, Sully Cruz, Hector Laveau, Bob Dylan, all the country people. Dolly. I mean, I got to work with everybody in all the styles and everything. I could go in the morning and play with the Brecker Brothers on a commercial yeah. with Faddis and Tom Harrell and those guys, and then go play on a, a, a session with Bob Dylan, somebody in the afternoon, and then go you know, play another gig at night at Sweetwaters, and then go up to McKell's and play till six o'clock in the morning. Uh, jam sessions with Richard T and Cornell Dupree. And, was you know, that those... during the Wrecking Crew days as well? I mean, no, the Wrecking Crew they... was in California. Yeah, I see. But my yeah. wife was in the Crystals, who I played see. on those Wrecking Crew. You yeah. know, Wrecking Crew played on the records. That's how I met. You know, all those guys. Yeah. So, what was the move from New York to California like? What? Ha- how'd that work out? She won Star Search, the Grand Champion. And we... this is during your time pr- uh, producing. Eighty six. And... I really started producing when we got out to here, California, because she got signed to Capitol Records. Both of us got signed. And we got this million dollar deal with Capital mm-hmm. after winning Star Search. And so we got out here and it was like, you know, okay, different phase. Now it's not just Sideman. We're going to do, do our own thing. And I thought the record would be a big hit. And the record was considered a legendary record, top 40 in the whole 80s over in Europe. Mm-hmm. But it didn't, you know, the record company changed staff. The president got fired. So when that happens in a shakeup, you're pretty much, you know, that your days are numbered. And the record didn't sell, you know, they, they stopped promoting it. A million dollars they spent on it. But mm-hmm. when they changed the people there, we were in, you know, okay, now we got to work. So I went right. back to, I set a studio up 
And I said, okay, fine, I'll do this. Maybe I can get clients. Do and what I, you were doing in New York out here. I, and I started doing more. I never really was producing in my own studio in New York. I was just playing on sessions and I conducted and arranged shows for people and arranged charts for different people. But, um, you so know, did I, you feel like you, like you really sacrificed by moving? Did you have a lot to give up in New York by coming out here? Or was it, did it turn no, it, out to it, be it okay? No, it had died. It had, you know, in 86, uh, two things killed the rec recording business. One was uh, in the music business, really, AIDS came out sure. really big. Sure. So people would go to clubs to meet other people's singles and the music would be in the background and all the musicians worked. Sure. So now nobody's going to clubs because they don't want to get, you know, pick up people. So then that nobody's going to clubs. So DJs really become big. And then the drum machine had came out and that means you could make a record where the musician didn't have to be in the studio at the same time. So between those two things, Nobody was working. So when I left, there was really nothing to I mean, leave. across the country or mostly in New York is where it died? In, entire recording business I see. changed. You know, those two things killed the live music business, especially in New York, though. Okay. New York was like, if you were working in New York, that means you had achieved something that was unbelievable because everybody from all around the world is coming there. Mm -hmm. My friend Ellie McGinn from Israel, who helped me get into the studios in Tel Aviv, when he got to New York, I mean, he just, he wanted to do jazz. He was studying with Eddie Gomez. He went to Manus School of Music. Mm -hmm. And so... I couldn't even help him out because he didn't want to do that kind of music anyway. He wanted to do straight jazz and you know, you don't make any money doing straight jazz. No, no so, even but, the greats. You know, and I was doing all the, I was working with all the great jazz musicians, yeah. but we're doing you know, pop and commercials and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you came out here, you, you guys bought a house? Um, we had a townhouse in Studio City. Mm -hmm. and, and then did you, you know, set up a studio somewhere else? In, or the, not, in the bottom of there, I had Bob Dylan. <laughs> I come back one day and um, I'm, we're on, of course, from Little Brown Church on Coldwater. And oh, yeah, I see, yeah, yeah. I see this guy, yeah, yeah right there on uh, 45, the 19th. Brick, the, the brick one with the white columns? Is that the, no, that the right, one? No, but right there between Moore Park and uh, Sarah, right over there, yeah. Lenark or something. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I come back and I see a guy in a hoodie in front of you know the place and it's like, hey, you get out of here. Hey, Ted. I was like, Bob? And he's like, yeah, I've been here for like an hour. What have you been doing? I've been working around the block. So had you, had you, did you know him from New York? I mean, I knew you him met from him? playing. I played on Empire Burlesque, okay, the so album in New York. York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm godfather of one of his kids. So, um, but I just didn't expect him to show up. And he's like, sure. I have to do an arrangement for, I'm working with Michael Chilson Thomas at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and he needed a chart. And it's like, okay, what are you going to sing? I was either going to do um, uh, uh, something else, Swanee or Soon. So let's do soon. So I work up an arrangement soon. I like write him a chart. You just invite him in. You guys. He go came in. in. Peggy cooked him some food. We hung out. It was great all day, and I made a track. And at that time, I only had a little eight-track reel-to-reel recorder. It was like you talk about 1988. Yeah. But it's like okay, I make up something with a little drum beat, and uh, he sings. He plays harmonica, and then I write a chart out. And he's going, you know, I've written charts for Broadway shows. I've done Whitney's charts. I'm really good at it. Sure. So he goes, I just give this to the musicians. They play it. I said, that's it. Just give it to them. <laughs> I put his name, Master Rhythm, Bob Dylan, wrote the whole like thing out. Like he'd never seen a chart before? And he what could sing. Mean? He could. Now he's got an album coming out where he's doing all these standards. But at that time, for Bob to sing Soon by George Gershwin, and he actually has a nice voice. I mean, I heard a couple of things from the new album coming out at the end of this month where he's doing all jazz standards. Did you work on that album? No. No? No. He did. <laughs> okay. So he hasn't spoken to me. Because here's another good story. So, um, I they, they called me up to do an interview on a book. That's what, what I said. When this, was this? Yeah, when was this? I, you, this? You can put anything I said in here because I don't care anymore. Sure, sure. But sure. at that time, I do this book uh, called Howard Soon. It's called Blowing Down the Highway. What year was this? Um, late '90s, right around there. Okay. So, um, the book comes out. And they interview Jeff Lynne, George Harrison, T Jim Keltner, all these famous people, sure. Tom Petty. 
the only quote that Roy has picked up is my quote out of the whole book. And my quote has to do with sitting with Bob at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. We were performing with this thing, tribute with Diana Ross. And so here on my left is Elizabeth Taylor in the green room. Yeah. Here's Bob Dylan, here's me. And Elizabeth sees Bob and she's wearing like a billion dollar Bob Mackie. She got the, you know, the Hope Jewels Diamond on. And, yeah, yeah. and Bob looks like he hasn't slept in like three days. He looks like he hasn't washed his clothes in a couple of days. He's just Bob, hair all messed up. And she gets up. I was gonna do my dance, but she goes up, oh, Mr. Dylan, I just think you're so fabulous, right? He's like, hey, Elizabeth, you know? And then she's gushing all over him. So in the interview, I said, Bob has this crazy power over women because Elizabeth Taylor, you expect her to be, you know, jumping all over somebody who's in a tuxedo. Yeah, sure. And here she is all over Bob Dylan. So I said, he has a crazy power over women. And I said some other things that were, you know, cool, but the interviewer adds the line, he has no hygiene into it like that. I said, he looks like he hasn't slept in three days. And he adds, he has no hygiene. So when the book came out, right, and Reuters, I, told, I said, the only quote they picked up Reuters worldwide was my quote about Bob and Elizabeth Taylor. Oh so Bob God. says, if I see Pearly, my nickname in New York, said, if I see Pearly, I'm gonna punch him in the nose. So I called up the author. I said, next time you see me, if I have a bandage on my nose, it came from Bob. Bob. <laughs> and I spoke to him one time, uh, actually on Facebook texting. He texted me, he was, he, that, he was yeah. on Facebook yeah. and he had start, stayed on there for uh, three weeks. And I saw his name, I sent him a text in Facebook Messenger and he wrote back. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't know if this is Bob. So I started asking questions only he would know about, yeah, right, right. like my goddaughter and stuff. And he was like right there. And then too many people came out, so he stopped. And I haven't spoken to him since then. You haven't? No. Would you consider you're on good terms? Despite the fact that you haven't nobody, spoken a long time, like, you don't Nobody know. stays on good terms with Bob. Yeah, what's the deal? You know, Bob is like... I mean, is he legit? Is he really uh, the way you think he is? No. Okay. He's a master it. of, uh, like, remember at the, um, uh, I think it was the Grammys, he went out, uh, and the guy came up with Soy Bomb. No, that was one of the concerts at the Greek Theater. He comes out on stage, the band starts, they play mm -hmm. something beautiful, and my friend was there, and he said, Bob came out and he got lost. I said, no, Bob didn't get lost. If the intro was too beautiful, Bob would listen and say, who do you guys think they are? You know, it's my show, and play. He knows what he's doing all the time. Really? Yeah. Now he's going to really punch me in the nose, but it's no, okay. No, no, I, no. I, no, I don't care. I don't care because everything is the truth. And, you know, he's a great artist, one of the greatest artists ever. He had me do. How does he hide it so well? He just, I, they, no, I didn't like him, you know. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, because I didn't like the voice, right? Yeah. He couldn't sing, yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. like, no. I, okay, I'll tell you, I'm not a huge Bob Dylan fan. Make me a Bob Dylan fan. They hired me to do his songs for other people. Okay. So I did an arrangement of Don't Fall Apart of Me Tonight for mm -hmm. Aaron Neville. I did Forever So you really uh, to take Young. these songs apart and really get to know them. Yeah, because they're good songs. Yeah. I did it for Leonard Cohen. I did eight songs for Leonard Cohen, one for Bono from U2, Jesus Celine Christ. Dion, Elton John. And I changed the arrangement. And I changed Dolly Parton's songs into R&B for Tina Turner. I her songs, yeah. And I did Bob Dylan's songs for other people. So when I had the songs and I could really break them down and look at them, you realize how great the lyrics are. And even Ron He's Miller, who wrote, I mean, if no I joke. could, and yeah. he wrote For Once in My Life, and I left the lyrics out without Bob's name on it. He looked, he said, wow, these are, this guy's really good. So to see the lyrics without the voice, because I, I could, the voice is like, this guy can't sing, and I always love singing. It's always been distracting for yeah. me, honestly. I, yeah. I mean, and I know people crucify me for it because a lot of my friends are just huge Bob Dylan fans. I can say it. You know, I, I can't say that I dislike him. I've just never, you know, I've just never gotten into it. It did. Yeah, never. It, look, I didn't think too much about Joni Mitchell, and then I was at her house oh, geez, hanging out I with Joni. Joni Mitchell. I, right? Let's talk about Joni Mitchell. I think Blue is one of the greatest albums it is. I've ever produced. Last time I saw Richard's, one of my time. favorites. I run to that in the morning. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's so tragic. All, it's all, so beautiful. All, um, what's the words? Meet the same fate. All... Yeah, all, all artists meet the same fate. No, the uh, all is word. All cynics meet the same fate. Sitting in a bar talking to nobody. That, that's that. I mean, I love that. I, I run to it. It's not. I usually run to ACDC. Yeah. But I can run to uh, last time I saw Richard. So to sit in Joni Mitchell's house with her. What was she like? 
she was great. Sick for the smoking, you know. Yeah, She's know. a great, cool Scorpio. Yeah. And then she was putting together something from Starbucks, and she said, "You like this order?" And we're just hanging out, having dinner. A friend of ours brought us over. Yeah. And I said, "You don't have your own songs on there." Oh, it'd be too ego. I said, "You, you got to put Jesus one of your songs Christ. on." I mean, that's Joni Mitchell. Yes, yeah, Joni Mitchell. <laughs> so I got her to put much. her own song. I changed the order, <laughs> and then she takes me into another room, and, and she, um, she starts playing the song on the piano. And I said, that's great. It was this kind of like Baccarat kind of thing. So yeah. I called up Bert and I said, hey, let's do a duets album with Joni. Bert says, she, I, know, I can't be around and she smokes too much. So, you know, and a couple other people said stuff. She's really, you know, cigarettes, it some really people just can't be around. It really, well, it really destroyed her too. I mean, her voice is, is an octave and a half lower than it was when she was But young. I like her now. Well, I know the uh, both sides now from her uh, oh, portraits. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's so, so touching. Larry Klein did a really nice job. Beautiful. And she'd give me an autographed, CD, she autographed all the uh, paintings, but I left it when I left home. I don't have it. Really? Yeah, I had Leonard Cohen. I, I took pictures of Leonard Cohen's book that he autographed to me, and I still have it when he passed away. It was good. That I still you left it. a bunch of stuff at your ex's I left, house? I worked with Margaret Atwood, and I did the music for Margaret Atwood's book, Year of the Flood. And so um, Margaret gave me two things signed, and I left those. And they said she doesn't sign books anymore, so I'm trying to get her agent to give me another book. Why is it everything lost from your? Oh yeah, when I left home, I escaped. So that it was, was pretty it. bad. Yeah, I left. I had thirty-five guitars. I took like ten. You know, but and, you'd leave in the middle of the night. What? Yeah, like exactly. You, like, a, yeah. like a restaurant that goes bankrupt. You just split yeah. I, I was a... afraid. They took it to a barbecue, and I got out of there. Really, it was like that. Really? Yeah. And I, I took like the guitar signed by Les Paul. I took things that I, you know, if I needed whatever. And but the hardest thing, there were racks of music for years from Tim Rice. I did stuff with Tim Rice, with Burt Bacharach. So all the music was in these cases and they're all, it's all gone. You're, you are you are on zero terms with her. No, I had a restraining order so she can't contact me or anything. How fresh is this whole thing? 2014. Oh, do you think you'll ever? No. Never? No. Is that because of you or because of the way she is? No, I can't be around her. I mean, it would you just, just make me too, uh, I, I, no. Yeah, okay. I, I couldn't even go back to that. But I would, I would send her, somebody to work with like if i had a singer and i wanted her to work with them i would send the singer to her because sure. she's a great vocal coach on idol <laughs> this is on it's like i have the thing i'm talking about her but she's such a great singer she worked with asa paka salonis she's been in symphonies and she has like she can sing any style of music mm -hmm. so um on idol she i got her she i hooked her up with you know my friend who was one of the music directors there mm -hmm. and so they brought her on and she was working with the kids so she kept throwing the cameras out and when the show came out, Ryan Seacrest goes, the kids are in Vegas, but first they have to get past the vocal coach from hell, the right. reverb. And, and that's what made Peggy her famous. screaming. She's going, no, sing it again, damn it. And these kids are crying. And she's saying, you know what? I'm going to be kicked back in my bed, my feet up laughing. And you're going to, and then they said, here's Peggy's um, theory on how to teamwork. So she says to one girl, bury her ass, right? Oh so this looks, God. it's great TV. Of course. And then the next year, um, Billy Bush said something, so I got her on Access Hollywood. I just yeah. started calling up all my friends, Carlos and Mesquit Fox, and yeah. I got her on all these TV shows. It was great. It was really cool. That's unbelievable. So it was like, still, but she was really, she's the only vocal coach they ever had here, there, who actually did it. Yeah. All the other ones were just teachers, but she had been on Broadway and, you know, Marilyn and the Wiz and all these shows. Yeah. And she had taught people. So she, like yourself, if you teach, she knew how to teach them so that it wasn't her singing, it was them, the best out of them. So she's sure. a great voice, and it looked really good TV because she's really strict, like nanny. Great reality sure. show. Sure. Now, with your with your newfound faith, have you taken care of all your debts? Do you think? Not do you have any regrets? Regrets or debts? Yeah, both. You know, do you have people that you need to call up and say, "Hey, man, I, I... I've cleaned up a lot of. Um, I got all my clients. 
Yeah. And all my clients came, uh, nobody, I didn't lose anybody, Yeah, which was really good. So they understand and they just said, nobody takes size is fine, which is a really hard thing, but they, she doesn't really work with them anyway. So I thought they couldn't get them. And they oh, I don't mean them. not in particular with your ex-wife. I mean, just in general, are there people in, you know, I, I go, I, I, I've got a couple, I've got a couple debts out, outstanding. Oh, that kind of debt. That I've got to say, hey, you know what? I was in the wrong or that, that was not cool of me. I've got I've got a couple that I need to clear up. I got three people that showed up last week I haven't seen in three years. Really? That came back and I was like, one guy is uh, E.V. Hill, Pastor E.V. Hill's uh, nephew, mm. great singer, mm. gospel singer. And he came back in and he was like, I can't get him out now. He just wants to stay in. You know, I always say, I don't have a problem getting people in. I have a problem getting rid of them. Yeah. They don't want to leave. So I could, if you ever came to sing, Calabro came over from England to sing in my studio and they said it's the best sound they ever had. And they won Britain's Got Talent, the five guys singing uh, yeah. show tunes. They so you feel like your conscience is clean? Yeah, I mean, let me see. People that I would like to go back and apologize to. I mean, apologize to, of, I apologize to people I work with. Were you ever I, part of the drug culture? Did you ever misbehave because of booze or, or you know, that kind booze. of thing? Not booze. I mean, we did, okay, so we did drugs in New York to just, you know, like, People would just take a hit and that would be it. Sure. You know? And I didn't sure. know any drug addicts. I knew guys that was like. So that wasn't a, a part of uh, no. burning bridges or anything. No, I knew drug dealers like and yeah. they'd give me stuff and it would like go bad. Yeah, yeah. It was like that. Yeah, so I didn't know anybody yeah. did drugs. Yeah. I've done every drug you can think of because I wanted to try everything once, but yeah. um, you don't it wasn't have an addictive anything. personality. No, way. no. Yeah. You know, I'm really disciplined as far as like. Yeah, me. Yeah. You know, I, I it don't just know, makes I me feel weak. I don't have that compulsion, actually. I don't know if it's discipline. I just don't have that. I don't need it. Yeah, you know the experience. Is it makes fine. me feel like reefer. People smoke reefer. Um, they think they're doing really good, right? Oh my and God, reefer is like, yeah. and their pitch goes out. The, the time goes, goes out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, did you listen to that? I have a singer I'm working right now doing his albums from Hawaii. Yeah, and so he keeps smoking. You know, he has a Hawaiian pot. He keeps going outside and smoking. Yeah, he comes back in, and I just thought I was just like, I said, I can't stand this. I said, I just spent two hours tuning your voice. And I said, you don't stay on the microphone, like I'm not doing now. You don't stay on the microphone. You're all out of tune. The time is bad. Yeah, yeah. I said, but when you don't smoke, it's fine. And he just finally listened to it. And he said, okay, I'm sorry. Because I started charging him more money for me spending the extra time tuning his voice. Yeah. I said, it's really hard. Smoke after. Yeah. And he just, it, you know, he's just addicted. I know some people that can smoke pot all day yeah. and, you know, do it fine. My friend, Billy Valentine. Billy, one of the greatest singers ever. He did the, um, he used to do a lot of Burt's demos and he did Boston Legal. The whole score of Boston Legal is Billy moaning. Uh -huh. Like that, uh -huh. great. But when he would do a record, he would do two tracks straight. And then he'd go outside for the ad-libs, smoke a joint, and the ad-libs would be great because he didn't have because, to stay yeah, with the melody. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're still you're still in it. You're still doing it. Doing what? You're still producing. And Oh, and no, I've, I've, my great success hasn't come yet because I am a much easier person to work with now um, before it was like, your music sounds great, but if I was kind of an arrogant asshole, you know, to, so what? And you, because that's what we were taught in New York to be really arrogant. Then everybody taught us, you're really good. You're a part of a select group. You've worked really hard to get here. Be arrogant. Even my son's godfather, Don LaFontaine, the voice of a guy in yeah. a world, right? Donald taught me, be arrogant about what you do because you're that good. So- How do you feel about that now? No, I totally, I don't believe that at all. Yeah. My whole mission, is I can do music, I can make it sound great, but I want the people I'm working with to walk out of this smiling. Yeah. And if they're smiling, then I've done my job. I it's not me, way. it's yep. them. Yep, I feel the same way. What are you working on now? Um, we've been doing this Lady Rebecca Holden's album with all these duets, and it's the most eclectic group of people. Yeah. She's, she's from uh, Knight Rider. She was the mechanic on Knight Rider. 
but it's been like David, uh, David Clayton Thomas, it's been Engelbert Humperdinck, Little Anthony, Benny Mardonis, um, oh God, who else is there? Gary Puckett. I mean, all these, you know, middle of the road people. And to me, Gary Puckett was like, I love all those records, Lady Willpower and all that stuff. Right. And so David Clayton Thomas was funny because I love Blood, Sweat and Tears. And I work with Chicago. So those were the two big horn bands. You like Chicago? Yeah. Okay, so he wanted a really good story. <laughs> I produced a group called the Manhattans. Sure. Let's just get and say goodbye. Sure. So um, I had been out on the road recording Chicago 26. I was the engineer on it for the live concerts. So I got- When was this, in the 70s? Or? No, this isn't uh, like late 2000. Oh, okay. So anyway, we did the live album, which came out great. Mm -hmm. And then uh, on the Manhattan's record, we have a version of Everyday People. Mm -hmm. I said, great. So I got Billy Preston coming to play organ. And I had uh, Jimmy Pankow wrote the horn arrangement. So I got his Chicago horns on that. And they're playing it just like, this is great. This is like just so cool because everybody, you know, met like to hook people up is cool. Yeah. I was producing Neil Sedaka's record. I called it Stevie Wonder. And I said, Neil loves you. You want to play harmonic on it? Great. So I can make those kind of connections. It's really cool. And I can't believe, so. well, just as a side note, I can't believe Stevie Wonder and how he's still singing. It's unbelievable. I've been trying to say- It's I, like he's made a deal with the devil or something. I don't, I, I can't believe it. Whitney made a deal, but that's another story. <laughs> no, but- I mean, his voice is the I same. I can't sing, a, I've tried to sing with him and it's a female placement. It's unbelievable. And I said, wait, I'm because I've been singing, here's a really funny thing. So a year ago, the choir in my church lets me start sitting in, right? Yeah. I've never sung in my whole life. I work with all these great singers and the sound that comes out of my voice is like not nothing, right? So they said, sit down. So I sit down next to the guy. He says, here, and I can read it. So I'm reading it. And so it culminates in that I sang with that John Runner concert, yeah. right? And I ended up sitting like, he was like right there where the corner is. And I said, he's going to hear me. And it's was like- Stevie Wonder? No, Bob, uh, John oh, Rudder. John Rudder, sure. But yeah, I mean, yeah. for me to sing yeah. is, is like incredible. So now I sing with everybody. You know, I yeah. mean, I sing in the choir sure. and they haven't thrown me out of the choir, which is a miracle. And I love singing because I've conducted orchestras, I've played, and the, the mentality of singing when it sounds, when your note and you hear this vibration between Isn't all the parts I know. is like- I agree. It, it's, it's like beyond anything I ever, I, I mean, conducting an orchestra is pretty cool, but this is like, even with a small church, big church, anything, just that sound and, oh, there's my note. And when the note hits the other, the sopranos hits the altos, hits the bass, the baritone, yeah. it's like, it's like sunshine. I had that same experience just last week in a rehearsal here, uh, upstairs in the rehearsal room with the, with the chorus. And there's a there's a moment where uh, the soprani and the and the tenors all sing in a very very pure note and and it, the overtones just almost blew my ears off I couldn't believe it a pianissimo note and we're all when every because the musicians here are really extraordinary and the singers are really extraordinary and everybody's right in the middle of the pitch and then suddenly it just goes <laughs> you know and and it it's just amazing it's I turned Stevie Wonder down like he asked me to work with him by the way How, why would you do that because I didn't want to be his slave. Oh my I, God. I produced Sarita, his wife. Yeah. I did two albums on Sarita, and she says, Stevie loves what you do. And um, does he have a reputation? No, I just what, like what when my, I was in a session with uh, David Bowie in New York, and Stevie called Dennis, the drummer, and he had to just stop what he's doing to come back work for Stevie because he was, when, no matter what he was doing, he had to go you know, with Stevie. So Stevie Wonder is like one of the most brilliant geniuses ever to, to come along. Yeah. But it's like with those people, they're, they're their shadow was so big. Were you imagining another Harry Belafonte thing where you would just get sucked into this? Yeah, imagine that. So I had a business yeah. where I work with different people yeah. and it's important that I work with, you know, a different variety people. Of people. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so to be just working for one person puts you at risk because when the person wakes up that day and they decide that you're not the uh, cast me out you're anymore, out that's why I left Israel. 
because I said I was there and I was really working above my ability at the time. Uh -huh. I was getting jobs because, I mean, it was great because the first session I went to, I said, Israel, I'm gonna, because I was afraid to record in New York because they said, if you mess up, you'll never work again. So I right. said, I, I went Cut to Israel. That was one of the Israel. motivations yeah. you asked me about going to Israel. Mm -hmm. So here's the first session I do in Israel. It's Vivaldi's Four Seasons written for clarinet and guitar in unison with all these people. And I didn't even know how to read that well. And I looked and I expect to see Havana Gila. And I'm no, like- It's a whole lot of notes. And they swung it. I was like, oh my God, I'm really way over my head. There's a lot of black on that page. Turn the volume down, run it through the first time, memorize it. Okay, that's what that looks like. That's what that is. Because the clarinet player, Mel Keller was great. So every time they ran it through, I'd play real low, not even playing. It's like, okay, that's that, that's that. Great, I got it. And so I learned how to read in eight hours. Literally like, I mean, I knew how to read, but I didn't know how to read, read. And so, Everything I did in Israel was really a learning experience and way, but I worked because they said, this is the American style. So I worked because I was American, but I figured at some point, somebody else is gonna come over from America and I'm not gonna be the new kid on the block. Yeah. And so I still, I realized I had stuff to learn. So yeah, I yeah. heard Aretha Franklin's till you come back to me. I said, we don't make music like that. And I came back to New York and ended up working with all those guys that did that record, wow. including Stevie Wonder wrote the song, so. So now, uh, where's your studio? Do you have a in Pasadena? In, in Pasadena, is it in your? Is it a home studio? It seems it's like a, everybody does that. I'm renting. Uh, I used to have all custom done studios that were built for me, separate. Sure. And uh, this place is uh, one of the guys from my church had this big old Frank Lloyd Wright house. Now this is great. So um, I said, okay, fine. I can set my studio up downstairs, and it's hardwood floors, and this. You can see daylight, and there's nobody around on the side. There's a British tea house there, but nobody on the other side. Yeah. And so uh, I have rooms I rent upstairs, but for the studio, there's like two rooms, and I'm depressed thinking I've reached the lowest part of my life. I mean, I don't have my custom studio. Yeah, yeah. This is you not left a that behind in your, with your ex. And, and the, the first house. person yeah. that comes in and sings, they said, Oh my God, the sound, Manhattan Transfer came in. They were like, The sound in here is unbelievable. I was like, What? And the house must be pretty awesome, too. The house is horrible. Oh, that, it is? That, yeah, it's terrible. Really? It's unkept up and everything like that. Frank it's, Lloyd Wright. It's like an old Frank Lloyd Wright cottage and, and it's in old Pasadena. Does it leak like a sieve? Like no. all of his houses? Oh, that's good. No, okay. that, but, it, but it has a sound that it's everybody sung there. It's just like, I can't get old. I'm producing Robin Thicke's mom, Gloria Loring. Yeah. She sung everywhere with everybody. She comes down from Arrowhead just to sing in there because the sound of the room is incredible. Really? If you came over to sing, yeah. my friend Elie McGinn from Israel, from the Israeli Philharmonic with Zubin Mehta and everybody came over and played, you know, played and we did a string quartet in there. And the sound was stupid. It's it's um it's like this. Uh, I got the it's like magic. Yeah, you come sing, I won't be able to get rid of you. You'll be amazing. like this house is. I don't care what's going on. You know, <laughs> nobody took care. I mean, it's, it's presentable. It's not messed up, right? No, I understand. But yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. not like I had custom houses. I yeah. had an eight bedroom house in Lakeview Terrace with a circular driveway. Yeah. So this house just has a sound that beats anything. It's like Clinton in New York. You ever sang at Clinton? Yeah. Which is the way they do the movies. Yeah. Hardwood floors. Unbelievable sound. Now, despite the fact that you're starting over, basically, it sounds like you're doing all right. That's what uh, Finding God did for me. I mean, God, you don't lose God. It's just you recognize that he's been there. And I said, however you want to call that, the universal sure. spirit, the great father, or anything like that. Um, the spirit that lets you smile like you're smiling now. Yeah. And you got a great job and you're here. And this is a great thing to do. And you have this beautiful voice. So, you know. I, I don't want to thank the floor, the wall, or the ceiling. I thank the Holy Spirit, the Lord, however you want to call it. I love it. For your spirit, which is amazing. Ted, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. 
Ted Perlman, everybody. I'm glad you got to uh, get to know this guy. You know, there are lots of people behind the scenes, uh, although he wasn't really behind the scenes. He he toured and, and was, you know, a performer for a long time on many recordings and many concerts around the world. Uh, it was a little bit before my time, before I got out to, to concerts, and uh, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of you. So it's great, you know, I think it's great to get to know these people. And he, he's so interesting and so forthcoming. And anyway, thank you, Ted, for joining me on this silly little show of mine. I want to thank all of my listeners for the support. Couldn't do it without you. I mean, I do it for you. This is my favorite day of the week. And I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of your week. Be safe. Be kind, and until next time. You like time. to dance, you like long walks, and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show.